Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. I would like to thank everyone who's been watching online and those that have been downloading the audio to this. Uh, in the last few weeks, and thanks for those of you who are here tonight. It is session five tonight. Last week, we ended with Paul back home, if he had a home, the place that he called home. Antioch was about as close as it got after he left Tarsus, where his journeys always seemed to begin. In Acts 18, verse number 22, it says, when Paul landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. In the Lucan account, down is not always south because uh, that's not how those cities are situated. Down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem at 2,500, 2,700, nearly 3,000 feet. Caesarea is the coastline going down. Some of you who've been to the Holy Land know that if you're in Jerusalem and you go in almost any direction, you're going down. Down to Jericho, down to Caesarea. He has covered 3,000 miles over the last three years. He made a return visit to Asia Minor, Galatia, modern-day Turkey, where his first trip had taken him. But then he crossed the Aegean Sea and entered Europe for the first time. And there we talked about, you may remember, that he chose strategic, intentional targets for his work. Either in a passive-aggressive type protest against the Roman Empire, or because uh, some of those cities were central transportation hubs, uh, whereby the gospel would travel further and quicker. And then a few of his spots that he stopped were forced uh, out of necessity, out of safety. They weren't strategic. It's just the heat got turned up so quick and so hot he had to flee for his life. Ultimately, he finds his way to Corinth where he would remain for 18 months. This was not on the quiz, but it could have been. Why does it seem he chose Corinth? Well, it was a large enough city, it would appear and cosmopolitan enough that Paul could do his work without the constant harassment and death threats that erupted in Macedonia to the north and in other parts of Asia Minor. Uh, Paul was in large cities, many of these, but no, no place quite like Corinth. Corinth was, uh, as I said last week, it's Sin City. It's the Las Vegas of, of Macedonia and, and lower Greece. No one was really that concerned about some ethical teaching that some rabbi they thought teaching the way. He was no bother. So he could go there and get some work done without the constant total harassment. Back to Acts 18. As they are headed home, they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. And when they asked him to spend more time with them, that's the, the church at Ephesus, Paul declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Luke is foreshadowing what is to come on this third missionary journey. 
Paul's third missionary journey could easily be described as his sojourn to Ephesus. He will be there uh, for two years. And I'm going to hypothesize that some of the time spent there was against his will. He was imprisoned there and came as close to execution as he ever would. And I'll hypothesize with N.T. Wright that the books we commonly refer to as the prison epistles were written there. Not in Caesarea a few years later and not in Rome even a few years after that. But we'll get to that. But this third journey begins as such. After spending some time in Antioch, the middle verse here. Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. It is likely that Timothy is with him. We have no word about Silas. We don't know. Luke appears to have stayed in Europe and did not come all the way back uh, because we lost the we part of the narrative way back in Philippi. And if you look at some of these verses, we're back to they and them. Luke is not with them at this stage. And as we said last week, Paul has now written Galatians. He's written 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. John, Mark, and Luke by this time are gathering material that will contribute to their gospel accounts. And it is likely that James, the brother of Jesus, has written the letter that bears his name. As we begin tonight, Paul's third missionary journey, it's circa 53 A.D., Paul has been a follower of the way and of Jesus for about 20 years, and he is about 50 years old. So he has come a long way from where we first met him as the study began as that wild, zealous, young uh, Pharisee. Uh, it's just kind of hard to think about. You teach the Bible over all these years, and you don't always put yourself in people's shoes. And I can certainly understand Paul as a 20-something, young and zealous. And uh, now I can tell you that I can understand Paul at about 50 years of age. Uh, about what kind of energy it was going to take to get ready for this third journey. And to launch out there another 3,000 miles. Because he's going to cover the same ground again. Going back to strengthen those congregations that he's established. I'm going to give this to you tonight in ABC fashion. A is for Apollos. And this is a young man that we meet in the latter half of Acts 18. This is Acts 18, 24 through 28. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor the word fervor there may be marked in your text with a little letter A if you've got it uh, either in your Bible or if I printed it on that sheet. I'm not sure if I did. The word fervor there is our favorite word to describe the young Apostle Paul. Zealous. So here's someone very much like Paul. And he taught about Jesus accurately. So he's heard the message of the way though he knew only the baptism of John. John who? John the Baptist. That's right. John came preparing the way of the Lord, baptizing. He doesn't know yet about Christian baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila 
heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So, some bullet points on what we know about this young man, Apollos. If you look at Acts 18, verse 24, it begins with that word, meanwhile. That happens a lot in the book of Acts. They're changing scenes, changing locations. Paul has left Ephesus and left the believers there in the capable hands of Aquila and Priscilla, gone back home. He's caught his breath, and now he is traversing back across Asia Minor coming back across modern-day Turkey, visiting all those little churches and those little uh, gatherings for a third time now, and he is on his way to Ephesus. That is the link to meanwhile. Apollos arrives in Ephesus. Paul is on his way to Ephesus, and we're introduced to him. So who is this guy, Apollos? Well, first of all, he's very well-educated. He's immersed in the Scripture, uh, the Old Testament Scriptures, And he is a Jew from Alexandria. And we'll start with the city that he was born in. Alexandria is named after its founder, Alexander the Great, on the coast of Egypt. And was the capital of Egypt before Cairo. It was famed for its massive library. It had the largest, most extensive library in the world in ancient times. Maybe three quarters of a million people lived there in the first century. And it had a very large Jewish population. In fact... Uh, The Septuagint, anybody familiar with that term? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. So it was completed, we think, and it was a work in progress, but we think it was completed about 200 years before Jesus. Remember we had talked over the past few weeks that there are those Jews that live in the Holy Land And there are Jews that are Hellenized. They've given up Aramaic and Hebrew. They've taken on, you know, Greek clothing. They speak Greek. Well, the the Jews in Alexandria spoke Greek. That was naturally the place they were going to take the Hebrew Scriptures and translate them into Greek. In fact, the oldest manuscripts we have before... 1948-49, before... The uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The oldest manuscripts we have of the Old Testament are in Greek. They are from the Septuagint. So we're indebted to those scholars working there in Alexandria. And so Apollos coming from Alexandria, he would have been a Hellenized Jew, highly educated. And you might think, well, why would he leave? He had it, you know. That sounds pretty good, you know, big Jewish community, big library. That's a place for a book nerd to be. Why would he want to go somewhere else? Well, about 15 years before these events that we read about here, all the Jews got expelled from Alexandria, just as they had been expelled from Rome. It's about, so we're at 50, it's about 40, 40 40 A.D., um, and it, it started over the most, the craziest thing. Herod Agrippa, 
who by this time in the book of Acts is dead, Herod Agrippa went down to Egypt on vacation. And once he got there and saw this great Jewish population there, he made some crazy appeals to them and talked about how superior they were to all of these Gentiles they were living amongst. And it set off an ethnic war in the streets of Alexandria. And Agrippa, like so many great politicians today or talking heads, rolled his grenade into the room and went back home, back to his palace. And then all the Jews that were left in Alexandria had to fight for their lives against uh, the Egyptians and the Greeks. And finally, Caesar himself had to step in. This was to protect the city itself from burning down. And so to, to clear up the matter, he didn't just say, you go to your corner and your quarter. He just said, all the Jews out. Uh, so Claudius, when he does it in 50, had the precedent set before him uh, by Tiberius. So, uh, so that would have been 47 or so uh, A.D. So we think that Apollos is either a little older or he is the child of a family possibly forced out of Alexandria. Priscilla and Aquila would have recognized and taken to this young man right away. Do you remember what we read last week? Priscilla and Aquila had been part of those ejected from Rome. So they know exactly what it's like to be in this young man's shoes. They go to him. They, they hear his preaching. It's, uh, it's very good preaching, but he doesn't know about Christian baptism. So they explain it to him. This is included in the narrative, I think, to show, again, the growing emergence of Christianity out of Judaism. And this is a reoccurring th theme here in, in Acts chapter 18. And I love it, if you'll notice, it's almost always Aquila and Priscilla. But if you'll notice in the text here, it's Priscilla first, then Aquila. Priscilla takes the lead in the instruction of this young man in their home. And you can almost see her functioning as some sort of surrogate mother to him. Because he is a young, zealous, probably pharisaical inclination. Paul would see himself in this young man. No doubt. And they sort of set him uh, on, the, on the right way because he listens to what they say, takes it to heart, changes his message. The church sends him off to Achaia, which is, has as its capital Corinth. So Apollos is at Ephesus, where Paul will arrive. He's going to Corinth, where Paul will later arrive. And he, Apollos and Paul, become partners with a little bit of distance there uh, over the time. This is complete speculation, but it was Martin Luther's speculation that Apollos is the most likely author of the book of Hebrews. He is schooled in the Jewish scriptures, highly educated. Hebrews is a little bit different than any other text we have in the New Testament. It is not Paul's voice. It's not Luke's voice. We don't really know who it is. Martin Luther always hypothesized that, that it was uh, Apollos. Although some of the early church fathers believe it was Barnabas who wrote the book of Hebrews. So, you know, for what it's worth, that's just speculation. But certainly someone like 
uh, Apollos could have pulled it off. Uh, Apollos is mentioned multiple times by name in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In Paul's letter to Titus, much, much later, Apollos is mentioned again. And it appears, if you read the end of the book of Titus, that Apollos is actually the one that carries the letter to Titus. So there's a lot of overlap, and we can understand now why in the Lucan account we're introduced to this young man. And then we get to Acts 19, and it reads, While Apollos, Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took to the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And that's our A. A is for Apollos. Any questions? They don't. Uh, they're saints. They're saints. They, uh, they uh, have feast days in both the Orthodox and Catholic churches. Um, you wouldn't hear about them much. You know. I heard about them, you know, in the preaching I heard as a child and always thought it was kind of funny. Quill and Priscilla, which is the way it rolled off uh, the tongue. Uh, and you don't realize, I mean, you understand Paul finds them and they're already believers. And really joins them where they are, and then they've come back with him. But they are so crucial at Ephesus. We, we won't get into this tonight. We, we will later in the study in the next couple of weeks, even though we have three sessions left. Ephesus becomes, in time, the incubator for the, for the church in Europe. Ephesus becomes the most important church, you could say, in the second century. In the book of Revelation, it's one of the churches that, are, that is addressed in Asia Minor as a key church. We think that Timothy, Paul's associate, would become bishop of the church at Ephesus. John, the disciple, would be at Ephesus. Rumors were always that Mary, the mother of Jesus, died at Ephesus. Uh, so it becomes critically important going forward. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, we don't hear much about them outside of just those few verses. It's a good catch. Other questions? So the question is, uh, for those who will be listening later, uh, Apollos educated in Alexandria, how did he hear about the Christian message? That's summing up the question that you had. The best indication that we have, and again, we're 25, 30 years now into the way. That's plenty of time for primitive Christianity to spread its message by mouth. 
The key event, however, is the Acts 2 Pentecost event. In Acts chapter 2, the first Pentecost, 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends on that primitive church. Thousands, it says in the book of Acts, are converted. Jerusalem would have been packed with Jews from other locations of the world who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate that holiday. And that is the seed that is planted that spreads the gospel. Now, if you catch that belief on Pentecost, and then you travel 4,000 miles, 3,000 miles back home, and none of the apostles are there to instruct you on, you know, the people that actually knew Jesus, you're really left to sort of make up and fill in some gaps on your own. And you find that in Acts 18. Paul does it with a group. Priscilla and Aquila do it with Apollos. Well, there's a little more that happened after you left town that day. And they, they bring them back in. And uh, Apollos, it's amazing that he knew so much. And he's really, the only thing he's missing is the baptismal piece. Mm-hmm. As, as just as he had come to the same conclusion as Paul. He's immersed in the Jewish scriptures, understanding Jesus. He's just taking those same ingredients and, and baking a different cake. He's coming to a different conclusion that he had had for his whole life, but it all made perfect sense to him then. Because he is so, he's just swimming in those Old Testament scriptures just as, as Paul was. Let's get to B. B is for break, as in Paul's travel agenda gets broken, it gets interrupted, and Paul's spirit was almost broken by the trouble that erupted in Ephesus. So first, let's go to that travel agenda. This is Acts 19, 21 through 22. After all this had happened, now watch this, it's weird. Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. He's in Ephesus, okay? Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Can we have the map? So Paul is in Ephesus, in the very middle of our map here, and you've got it printed for you as well. And he says the strangest thing, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem after I pass through Macedonia. So you don't just pass through Macedonia on your way to Jerusalem. It's way out of the way. It's in the opposite direction. So this is... You know, one of those Pauline sentences, and there's a lot of them in his letters, where he starts saying things, and it's like, it's a sentence that's a thousand words long, you know, no break, he's just like, it's just spilling all out of the top of his head. I'd really like to, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, but oh, I need, well, I'll do that after, well, you know, I need to do this. But his plan is, I'm going to leave Ephesus, I need to get back to Jerusalem, but I'm going to go check out the brothers, you know, in Philippi. Thessalonica again. I said it last week. Paul doesn't cover new ground. He's going to go back and 
and retread the same paths to strengthen those that have been converted. And his intent, it seems, was to get back to Corinth specifically. It caused him a whole lot of trouble, but he felt obligated to them after spending so much time with them previously. So, the timeline goes like this. He gets to Ephesus. Almost as soon as he's to Ephesus, he's like, maybe I should have gone to Jerusalem. Well, I'll get there. But I need, to go to, I need to go to Corinth. He writes what we have today as 1 Corinthians. Seemingly. When he arrives on his third missionary trip to Ephesus. And in that letter we read this. Quote, Paul writing to the Corinthians. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while. Or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. You see it? Well, you will just have to see which way the wind blows. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. That's 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 9, where Paul is telling them from Ephesus, I'm coming to you after I go to Macedonia, but I need to stay here a little longer because I got this great opportunity, and there are a lot of people here that hate me. Weird. It's almost like Paul, it's almost like Paul is saying, I really haven't done enough here yet because no one's tried to kill me. That's when I know it's time to move. And he has this sense that something is really going to happen in Ephesus. I'll see you in a little while. Let me finish the work here. That is the window through which we look at the rest of his time through Ephesus. Because what we think happens is it all goes down the drain. Those people who opposed him rose up in a way that he did not anticipate at the time. The balance of Acts 19, verses 23 through 41, tell us about a riot that almost takes Paul's life, and we have to connect a few dots as to the outcome, so stay with me here. It all starts with this silversmith by the name of Demetrius, and Demetrius is in the theater. Do you have a, a little map of Ephesus? Did I include that one? It's a little bit smaller, but if you, yeah, no, no, I may not have, have, have given it to you, and I don't think I have the, uh, no, I, I blew that one, but that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll recover from, from, from that. So at Ephesus, there in the heart of the city is a theater, and it was a place where they would put on a play, but it was also a gathering place where the town would gather and shoot the breeze and talk about the news, you know, just one of those town hall places. Demetrius goes to the town hall one day, he's a silversmith, and he makes these little uh, goddesses, these little silver idols, and he made a good living, the, the silver idol was named after the god there in Ephesus, uh, Artemis, and he sold these. And one day he says, you know what, this Paul guy's been in town a little while, 
And everybody's starting to convert to what he's got to say, and nobody's buying our idols anymore. We're going to go broke. It's essentially what he says. This is what he says right here. There is a danger. This is uh, verse 27 of Acts 19. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout this whole province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So he, he's a businessman, and he's a true believer in Artemis. And so this speech is given in the Roman theater. Chaos ensues, and this cry goes on for hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And finally, a city official comes out and basically says, Look, you're going to have to calm down. Because uh, if you really want to get this guy Paul, you're going to have to bring him up on legal charges. Out here in the street causing a riot is not going to get anything done. And then at the end of Acts 19, we're simply told they accepted that word. And then we have this massive gap of what happened next. Let's talk about what we think happened here. First, there is the temple of Artemis. Can you throw the temple up here? This is a one-quarter reproduction just outside the ancient city of Ephesus today in Turkey. So it is a quarter of the size of the actual temple of Artemis that was built in Ephesus and was standing in Ephesus when Paul was there. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, it's gone now. That is the, the, the miniature there. Artemis, the Romans called her Diana, was the original goddess of the Amazons, they said. Diana, by the way, Wonder Woman's given name, Diana, Artemis. This fierce warrior woman. And there was a temple to Artemis at this site in Ephesus going back 1,500 years before Paul. Let me, let me give you some perspective on that. The temple to Artemis was built for the first time about the time that Moses was on Mount Sinai getting the law of God. Hundreds and hundreds and century after century of Artemis having this temple site. And so by the time Paul comes along, the temple is in its zenith. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And beyond the Amazons, Artemis was the goddess of life and life, child birth and fertility, yet she was perpetually a virgin. It would be interesting to think about that in relation to Christian theology as we go forward. I, I believe I've given you a picture, but let me give you two here. These are actual, and Demetrius himself may have made these. We don't know. These are two of those little silver household gods built to Artemis, dated to the first century, recovered in 1855 by British explorers. There are 64,000 of these in the museum at Ephesus today. And they're ornate, made of silver. These were household little gods mimicking the great god Artemis. So if we start here at this one on my left, and we move up from the bottom, at her feet are 
two honeycombs, milk and honey, always the sense of abundance, stags or goats, probably goats that are giving milk, that's the whole prosperity piece. And then as you move upper legs, those little bitty niches that you see are actually wild animals, little heads of uh, stallions, goats, lions, tigers, uh, a bull, all the way up. Around her neck, she has grapes, and on her shoulders, she has a zodiac necklace just below that. Her headdress is again more of the wild animals, the abundance, and then of course, the obvious, what's on her belly and chest. Scholars are divided. The majority of scholars, about 75%, see these, every one of these as a breast, the giver and sustainer of life. The remaining scholars say, <laughs> it's not a breast, these are bull testicles. The symbolism is the same. Virility, life, life-giving, and this is the goddess of Ephesus. This is exactly what Demetrius was shaping with his own hands. This is what Demetrius was selling. And this is what Paul was interrupting. Now, here's the, this is the great thing about archaeology. You know, these were all pulled out of the ground by the Brits in the mid-1800s. We're over here fighting the Civil War. Then, before we even know these exist in the world... We fall into World War I. It's only post-World War II, as the world gets a little bit smaller, that these even become public to the world. The scholarship that is gained from this, where we just, you know, two, two generations ago, you had to guess, I don't know what in the world they're talking about here. There it is. You can go to Ephesus now. Well, you could now, if you go get on a plane. Go to the Ephesus Museum, and they're there. In the case, 64,000 pieces since the mid-1800s have been recorded and recovered there. Uh, so, these, and they're essentially cult members. It's a religious cult. Paul has these uh, as his enemies. And the hypothesis is, Luke is not there to give us the account. Timothy has been sent away. Paul is there alone. And they bring him up on charges and throw him in jail. That's the hypothesis that we're working with here uh, in Ephesus. Uh, I'm going to read very quickly to you uh, from 2 Corinthians. Now, Paul writes 1 Corinthians when he gets to Ephesus. We don't know how long he's in jail, but he appears to be in jail after, over this whole event here. After he gets out of jail, he goes back to Europe and he writes what we have as 2 Corinthians on the way and sends the letter on ahead of him. What I'm about to read to you in 2 Corinthians is not like anything else Paul ever writes about anywhere else in all of his letters. And I want to root it in this context. He is writing these words as he leaves Ephesus on his way to Philippi and then eventually down to Corinth. Of all the letters that we have, you will never find him more despondent than what I'm about to read to you. So here we go. Chapter 1. 
Praise be to the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we, were, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Chapter 4. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed. Chapter 6. As servants of God, we have been in trouble, hardships and distresses, beatings, imprisonments, and riots. In hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet we have not been killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And then chapter 7. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were, had been harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by, by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. And I can go on and on in 2 Corinthians. But whatever happened in Ephesus after that riot and before he leaves town shook Paul in a way that we don't see anywhere else in any of his letters. If you pick up 2 Corinthians and you read that and you think, oh, Paul's just writing some nice, comfortable stuff. He is writing it with Ephesus in the rearview mirror just as fast as he can get away from there. And there's another piece of evidence tonight that we'll get to that I think strengthens this case uh, as well. So it's likely that the two years spent in Ephesus included some prison time. And from that time came possibly the next four letters that Paul would write. Ephesians, communicating with them since he could not be with them. Philippians, as he says, he is sending Timothy and hopes to come to them himself. Philipp, uh, Philippi was only 300 miles away. He writes Philemon, an individual he knows in Colossae, only 150 miles away. And the book of Colossians is written at the same time. And finally, we come to Acts 20. When the uproar had ended, the trial is over. Paul sent for the disciples and encouraged them, said goodbye, and set out for Macedonia. So that's the gap we're filling with our imagination right there. This riot breaks out over Artemis. Finally, it ends. We don't know what happens during that time period, but it appears, like I said, that it shakes Paul in a way that we had not known previously. Questions? Let's look at where we are as far as Paul's writings and the books. First book that we, if you, if you take what's called the Southern Galatian theory, the early Galatians, then 
Galatians is the first book that he writes. He writes it at Antioch after his first missionary journey. Then he writes the Thessalonian letters at Corinth during his second missionary journey. He writes 1 Corinthians at Ephesus when he arrives in the very journey we've talked about tonight. Then, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Certainly, he writes all of those from prison. And I'm hypothesizing with N.T. Wright and others that it's an imprisonment that takes place at Ephesus. He writes 2 Corinthians and Macedonia after leaving Ephesus. And then he writes Romans at Corinth near the end of this third missionary journey. And then there is a lull. Paul doesn't do much writing for a while. In fact, Paul will be in Rome before he takes up the pen to write again. C is for completion. Paul will now turn from Corinth. Can we go back to the map, please? Paul will return from Corinth to see the two-way lines. Recover the ground one more time, going north into Macedonia. Come across to Troas. He will leave Troas on his way back to Jerusalem. But you'll notice, and this is the small map that you have on the back of your paper there. He docks at a place called Miletus. He doesn't go to Ephesus. Listen to this. This is Acts 20. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. He is over the province of Asia. He'll never go back there, okay? For he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. More of the evidence here. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now... Compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And then he says this. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. So Paul will not go to Ephesus. He'll go to Miletus on the coast, but he is not getting near that town. And he asks for them to come to him. 60 miles. And they come to him. Probably would have taken them three days. That's how resistant he is to ever step foot there again. He goes back to all these other places where they beat him up and threw him in jail. He just goes right back. He will not go back to Ephesus. And when, you know, when he says, he doesn't have a premonition of his death, but he says, you will never see my, <laughs> you ain't never going to see me around here again. Uh, and he meant it. 
I'm not going to see you again. But you know, that, that, that's it. But if you know you're not going to see him again, well, we better go walk. We better, you know, hitch up our donkeys and go. You know, he's essentially, you know, one of the, the fathers of the church. But if they're ever going to see him, they had to walk to the beach to see him. He wasn't coming inland. Isn't that great to see that? I mean, it's tragic in many ways. But Paul, even Paul, who didn't seem to be afraid of anything, he's not going back to Ephesus. Whatever happened there was shattering to him. Didn't stop him from work. Didn't stop him from preaching. But he's not going back there. Luke is not with him. In fact, Luke is not with him until they start sailing back toward Jerusalem. The we account picks up again at Philippi. So that's where Luke has been this entire time. So when we move in to Acts 20 here, uh, make sure I get this. Acts 20, I think it's Acts 21 or Acts 21.1. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea. There's Luke. So he has rejoined the party. Luke is... Only the Second Corinthians passages where it was obvious that he had gone through something terrible. If Luke had been with him, maybe Luke would have given us more. Luke loves details. If you go back into Acts 20 there, Luke's going to tell you about, we went to Philippi and we stayed seven days. Then we went to Neapolis and it was there for four weeks. Then we went over to Troas and we couldn't get a boat there. So we sent, he, and you're like, oh my God, this is, this is, we've gone too far in the other direction. Luke loves the details. But when Luke falls out of the account, it's obvious that we're not getting all, everything that he would have been paying attention to. I think so. I think so. And I think it's easy to imagine Luke in Philippi because remember... The, the vision of the man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And some scholars say that was Luke. And Luke joins them at Philippi for the first time. So let's just, for argument purposes, say, you know, he's a Greek from Philippi. Timothy arrives in Philippi while Paul is in jail in Ephesus. And you know, this is, this is as close to Luke as got to Paul in three years. Oh, what's going on? What's, tell, tell me everything, Timothy. Well, Timothy can tell him everything up to that point. But Timothy's not in Ephesus to even know what Paul is going through. And so you can imagine like someone traumatized that even when Paul gets to him, he's not going to talk about it. If you, if you, ever, if you know someone who's trauma, truly been, they're, they're not really interested in giving you the gory details of what's been done to them. It's all acts. All, all acts. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, he wrote all of Acts, all of the gospel of Luke. And he is right. And he will be Paul's. From this point forward, in the book of Acts, Luke remains with Paul to the end. So when he rejoins him here, he won't be separate. He won't separate from him again. He goes all the way to Rome with him. So the rest of Acts is weak. Uh, and we we have, and you can you can if you go pick up your Bible and look at it, look at where the the we accounts are in Acts and the they accounts, 
And the we accounts are extensive with detail. Every time. The they accounts, not so much. Because Luke is relying on interviewing others, it would appear there. If they remembered, right? Or if they wanted to talk about it. Paul's pretty tight-lipped about what ha- whatever happened at Ephesus. Questions? I hope that what you, you see in this is that I'm, I'm, I'm not just wasting time muddling through Acts. I want you to feel the human context. That was the ambition all along. Paul has been treated as such the theologian, loved, hated, derided, whatever. This is a human, this is a man. No different than any of us. Now, what he accomplished was extraordinary. But he's a human being. And it's that humanness of him that is, to me, as powerful as any of the words that he wrote. He suffered. uh, He struggled. uh, But he never but he persevered all the way to the end. And this third journey, and that's really what I wanted to do tonight, is to see the real human side of him. If you go back, read those Second Corinthian passages, and you see all of his struggles, that all happened with whatever occurred at Ephesus that we don't get the whole story. Rush just said that in his work with PTSD suffering veterans, that they use portions of 2 Corinthians in that work as they're processing it. And you, when you read those passages, I mean, though, that's, a, that's heavy. That's heavy. He's, you know, he's rarely, he's rarely alone. Uh, Barnabas on the first trip was a constant companion. Silas a constant companion until the big dust up in Thessalonica and he had to go to Athens by himself. But even then, Timothy and Silas came to him. Timothy travels with him to Ephesus on this third trip. Okay? But then he sends Timothy ahead of him to Philippi thinking, I'll be right behind you when I finish here. And I think that he got caught alone. And I think that's one of the reasons that they could get leverage on him. Uh, Because you always see these folks, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, let's get Paul out of here. Let's get Paul out of here. If they'd been around, they might have yanked him out of trouble before it got to him. Any other questions? All right, next week. Paul's journey to Rome.